Romans 13, starting in verse 1. We will read the verse 14. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have, their, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rules are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attendant to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Like always, God, we be lost and strangers and aliens in this world without your word. God, we be trying to make it on our own with our own philosophies, our own imaginations and exaggerations and our own laws, Father God. We be trying to please ourselves and not knowing how to please you. But your word, Father God, brings us face to face with your loving kindness. And we're so grateful for it, God. We're so indebted to the word of God. We're so indebted to the Holy Spirit, Father God, that makes the word what it is. It's alive and it's real and it's the will of God. It's a revelation of your heart, Father, to your people. Breathe upon the text tonight, Father God, as we want to understand and know the time and the hour that we're living in, Father God, and how to please you and what it means to you and what it ought to mean to us, Father. So bless this service, Father God. Bless the preaching of the word. Open up the hearts and minds of your people, Father God, that we may know you better and obey you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. As we started several weeks ago speaking about uh, Christian eschatology and speaking about last things, what does the Bible teach about last things? What as Christians should we expect in the coming weeks, in the coming months, in the coming years, in the coming decades that lie ahead? Uh, Does the Bible give us specifics or does it give us a general framework? The Bible gives us a very strong, insightful, general framework of what we can expect, the times we are living in. 
this is what we're going to be looking into over the weeks and months ahead. The end time sort of eschatology. Where do we fit into this? What's, what's life going to be? What's the time we're living in now? What's, when we die, what's death going to be for us? What's the judgment going to be? What does it mean to be a believer and stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Or should we fear? Uh, do you want to know if you should be afraid? You'll have to come to that sermon because I'm not going to tell you now. But be prepared. Uh, what's heaven going to be like? I can't wait to get to that subject. I want to spend some time on heaven. I will speak about the judgment. I will speak the right the judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, we will speak about the misery of hell and what hell is and what it's not. And so these are the things pertaining to, some things pertaining to eschatology that we're going to be dealing with. And, uh, but I, I spoke, I'm picking out this uh, text tonight to speak on something uh, about the time we live in right now. And Paul addresses this. In chapter 13, it's not everything that can be addressed at this specific time we live in, but it's a text that really does speak about the hour. Very important what Paul says, for this is the hour. It's not just know the time, but it's the hour. It's not just the last days or the last day coming, and it's not just know the time, but it's the hour. It's that hour in spiritual time where Christ is just about to come back set up his kingdom, judge the unrighteous and the wicked, and uh, usher in the kingdom of God. Now, to me and you, an hour would be 60 minutes. But in God's economy, uh, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. So from God's perspective, and this is the most important, it means nothing to what me and you think about it. A scientist would come up and say, you know, we will be here for another Five million years. It makes no difference. From God's perspective, we are in the last hour, and that's the only perspective that counts. Amen? So we are in the last hour. I read the first uh, ten verses of Scripture because it's the Christian's relationship to the government. To be a conscientious citizen of any government we find ourselves in. And so Paul writes about that. And then he writes about the relationship between uh, a believer and other human beings. And he says, oh, nobody, nothing but love. Because when we do that, that's the whole law. And Jesus says that. The whole law is summed up in love. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. And now Christ is going to speak about our relationship to the world we live in in the very hour. And that's why he says this. Besides all this, besides knowing that love is the fulfillment of the law, and besides knowing that you should be conscientious citizens of the state, besides this, know the time. Know the time. You know, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for what? Not knowing the time. Remember twice actually he says, you did not recognize the day of your visitation. We know that. It was uh, Palm Sunday when he was entering into Jerusalem. And everybody was rejoicing because Messiah was here. The only one who wasn't rejoicing was Christ. He was actually weeping. Because he understood the time and they didn't. But he also told the Pharisees, you know how to uh, forecast the weather. You know the seasons. You know the times. You, you know when it's going to rain the next day. But you can't discern spiritually the times that the Messiah is with you. And he rebuked them. So when Paul says, you know the time, make sure that he's not saying, I hope you understand the time. 
He's not saying, I hope you figure out the time and the season spiritually you live in. And he says, you know the time because it comes with the preaching of the gospel. When you got saved, you should have recognized something spiritual was happening in the world. And the gospel age has come and something came upon you. You were convicted of your sins and you accepted Christ in your heart. And when you got saved, people explained to you before baptism the season and the time you're in. These are people that Paul is writing to. These are not people that got saved on their own in some obscure way. Most people got saved through a clear teaching of apostolic uh, preaching in the first century. Either by the apostles themselves or by emissaries of the apostles. They had a clear understanding of what it meant to be saved. They had a clear understanding of what salvation was. They had a clear understanding of the times they lived in. That's why Paul says, besides all this, you know the time. I want to speak about knowing the time and uh, how important that is for us tonight. And I chose this text because uh, it really does, in one single unit, it really defines how we should live in this time. So we're going to spend some time on trying to understand this time. In this hour that we come to. So I'm going to read the text again and we'll move on. Besides this, Paul says, you know the time. It's not just the time to love your neighbor as yourself and fulfill the law. That's what the law is there for. If you love, you don't have to worry about the law. You know the time. You know that you should be conscientious Christians in any state you find that God, you find yourself in by providence. If it's under Rome, if it's under Nero, it's under Caligula, pay your taxes. Have nothing to do with the, with, with the magistrates. Know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But... Christian man and Christian woman put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul says, you know the time, kairos, it means opportunity. It actually means a special season. When he says you know the time, it's not the winter or the spring. It is a spiritual season on the earth. It's a special season. Know the time. The time is this. It's the time of the gospel. Know that you are living on the greatest grace of God ever in all of human history. That by God's providence, you have been saved under the gracious mercy and redemption of Jesus Christ. You are not living under the law of Moses. You are not living in the darkness anymore. You're not living in grave ignorance anymore. You've been pulled out of the darkness and into the gospel light. You have full understanding. God has revealed to all of us exactly that which he wants for us. Exactly that which is what Christ has done for us. This is the opportunity. It is the time of opportunity. It is a special season in human history. We should be rejoicing right now, for we have Christ our sacrifice, and we don't have to try to please God through dead works. 
we come here. I don't know who came in here. Did anybody come? Don't raise your hand, but did you come in broken today? Did you, did you come in maybe hopeless and downcast because life has got you? And it's just beating on you? And you feel a sense of hopelessness and a, a sense of despair and a sense of how long God or when God. Or maybe you came in rejoicing. In either case, it's because you live in a season of grace. And we can come in here if you're rejoicing or if you're downcast and we can say, praise God. Instantaneously, I can enter into the presence of God because of what Christ has done. For this is the season of opportunity. This is the time of the gospel. And we know it. We're not disoriented. As we've been speaking about the last couple of weeks, time structures life. Without time, without a calendar, without a clock, without minutes, without the day, without the night, without the seasons, we'd be disoriented. We'd be walking around in a type of maze. And I've shared over the last couple of weeks how there's people in our life right now who are hospitalized. And when you go to the hospital and people don't know if it's 6 p.m. or 6 a.m. and they're disoriented and, and there's something missing. It's not more than, oh, I didn't know what time it was. It's not, I'm missing this by 15 minutes. It's, they really don't know where they fit in. They're disoriented. Jesus says in John 12, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. He's disoriented. He doesn't know where they're going. People without Christ and without the light of the gospel and understand that they don't know they're aimlessly roaming around. It looks like they're going somewhere, but in God's eyes, they're in the darkness and they do not know where they're going. And what is this time? When, and we have here in this text four metaphors to help us understand the time, what we're in. And he calls it not just an hour. He says, the hour. This is the hour. This is the hour of God's greatest work in Christ. This is the hour that God has not just saved the Jew, but he's saving the Gentile also. This is the hour that was promised to Abraham that all the nations of the world were going to be blessed through Jesus Christ. This is the hour that God's bringing Jew and Gentile together into one family, into one community. It's called the church. This is the hour. We are to know it. And we are only moments, only seconds and minutes away before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught throughout the parables of how a Christian should live in this life as a redeemed sinner. And that's someone who's waiting for his master's return. That we can return at any time. This is not Paul's thought. This goes back to Christ. It was Christ who talked to his disciples. You do not know when the Son of Man is going to return. Be at work. Be ready. For you do not know the hour or the time of your master's return. This is the hour. It is the final hour. There is no other hour. There is no other time. There is no other opportunity. But now. And he says, this is the hour to awaken from your slumber. It's interesting. Who is Christ talking to? Believers, or I should say, who is Paul talking to? Is he talking to believers or non-believers? Well, Paul's a good minister. He knows the audience. There are those who truly are believers. 
And there are those who still come, but they're still slumbering in their sleep. And they're still spiritually dead. And there's some who are still spiritually alive, but they're still slumbering in one area or another of their life. And that's true of all of us. God is working all the slumber out of all of us. It means to cause to stand, or cause to wake up, or cause to exist and to live, to raise to life, to stir up, to raise, or to rouse yourself, awaken, arouse yourself from your spiritual sleep is what he's saying. And why does he say that? For the next metaphor is salvation is nearer than when we first believe. Final salvation of a new heaven and new earth. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. Salvation, the final salvation, because he says in Romans 8 already, we're saved in the hope of our salvation. We're saved in the hope of our future consummation of our salvation when we will be with Christ face to face forever. That's why God saved us in time and space. He saved us in time and space. For me it was 1990 of May. He saved me then in time and space for a future consummation where there be no more sin, no more suffering, no more death, no more Satan, no more temptation, no more falsehood, no more lying. That is where we're going. He saved us in time and space for eternity with Him. Salvation, this salvation of the new heaven and new earth, everything Christ has purchased us for, is right here. It's closer to us when we first believe. And that's true for any of us. I know saints here that have been saved 30 years, 40 years in this room. If you're saved, say, one week, you're closer today to salvation than when you first believed. We're getting closer to Christ. He's getting closer to us. We are to discern our life, and we'll speak about this spiritually and morally, under that pretext that salvation is closer. I ask you a question, all of us. Do we live on a more heightened alert of Christ coming? Are us going to see Christ after all our years of salvation? Make an estimation of your own spiritual life. Do you have a sense of longing to see the Lord? Do you have a sense, wow, I've been saved quite a while now and I'm getting closer to see the Lord? Or is it a mute issue? Should we be indifferent? Should we listen to the exhortation of the apostle and to lift up our heads for salvation is nearer to us today than it was when we first believed? He says in another way, he says, the hour is here, awaken from your slumber because the night is almost over. And the day of Christ ruling and reigning as king, it's almost here. You can, you can almost hear the trumpet coming off the shelf. You can almost see and hear the angel preparing the trumpet sound to call the dead in Christ and transform those who are still alive when he comes. If you listen really closely as you read your Bible, you will hear it. You will hear the Spirit. Calling our hearts saying, the night is almost over, Brian. The day is almost here. Put away the nonsense. Put away the indifference. Put away the sin. Put away the the compromise. Put it away. The time is almost here. It's in the scripture. You cannot read scripture conscientiously and prayerfully and not hear that voice. You cannot praise God and listen to a sermon conscientiously and prayerfully and devotedly and humbly and repentively without hearing that voice. 
all Christians are called to deal with the slumbering that's still in them. And that still remains. All of us. This is the hour of rousing to awake out of the slumber. It's the hour to arouse and arouse oneself up and stand up for Christ. This is the hour. Don't put it off for another moment. The book of Hebrews says it a little differently. It says that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. This is the hour to rouse oneself, to stand up and be accounted for the Lord. This, we have this wonderful word picture here of a bridegroom walking down or walking up to the door to announce himself to the prospective bride. Ready or not ready, that's what Christ is doing. It's all these biblical metaphors to help determine our mindset in this world. These metaphors aren't there to... They're there for... No, let me tell you what they're there for. They're there to, to imprint and tattoo onto our mind in vivid memory, in vivid understanding, a picture of Christ coming to grab our spiritual attention while we live in this world. But it goes on to do more than that. It goes on to highlight God's grace and patience and salvation and sanctification. Paul's not saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What he would say is, go back to Romans chapter 8 and put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit you live. You're more than conquerors. Nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. There is no condemnation. Put off your slumber. Awake from your slumber. The Spirit of God is within you. Offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice. You're dead to sin. And you're alive to Christ by grace. The law is over. You're divorced from the Lord. The law is dead. You've been married now to Christ. Awaken from your slumber. And live out this salvation in fear and trembling. It is God's patience and God's kindness that drew you to repentance in your salvation. It's the same kindness, it's the same grace, it's the same patience that moves you forward in sanctification. This is a very special time of God's grace to be saved and to be changed. Grace has given us enough time to deal with the most stubborn of sins in our life. God is awesome. He just doesn't forgive us. And I don't have to come here and give my own vice list. We have, all have them. But it's also his patience and kindness that scrubs out the deepest stains of our heart. What a season we live in. What an hour. To put on Christ. What an hour to cry out and say, God, I know you're coming. I'm closer today than I was. Thank you for your mercy and grace and salvation. Thank you for your loving kindness and great patience and forbearance in my sanctification. Oh, my mind knows, but my heart is slow to become, Father. It's slow to change and it's slow to learn. Verse 12b. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of life. So then, as the ESV says, or the NAS says, therefore, 
And I like that because it makes a point. Now he's going to teach us how to do it. He's going to teach us what he means. Now the negative and the positive exhortations, these metaphors. This is how we are to respond in the last hour. This is how we respond. This is how we are to wake up from our slumber. This is what he's saying. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. Okay, Paul, I can understand that. I can understand what you mean in that. You're talking about my behavior. You're talking about my character. You're talking about my conduct. Now I understand. I get the metaphor. I get you. I, now I understand what you mean by about don't sleep anymore and don't slumber anymore. You're making it clear now, Paul. I can understand. Put off the deeds of darkness. Put all off this ungodly shameful behavior that I'm so accustomed to in the culture I live in. I finally understand. And he goes on to say, from the negative to the positive, don't just take off the deeds of darkness. He goes, but put on the armor of light. Put on Christ-like character. Put on the fruit of the Spirit. It's like a shield and it's a protection to you. I like that. Put on the armor of light. Put on Christ. We don't realize when most likely he's talking about self-control and love, most likely the two major ones he speaks about, faith, love, self-control. They're like a shield, they're like a protection to us in the culture, in the darkness we live in, in the darkness we come out of. How careful we have to be to open up ourselves to certain things, and he's going to bring that up later on in in the text. But we have this positive, and we have this negative metaphor of laying aside something, the deeds of darkness, which is self-evident. The deeds of darkness is shame, shameless godliness that we see in the world. Take it off. Have nothing to do with it. Be a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, he says in the last chapter. And put on the armor of light. Put on the Spirit's grace. Put on Christ-like character. It'll be a shield to you. It'll be protection to you. It'll give you self-control. It'll give you love. It'll give you peace, goodness, kindness, joy, humility. Put it on. Lay it aside. Verse 13, he says at this hour, Let us walk properly, as in the daytime. Not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. Verse 13 clarifies what Paul has been saying all along through these metaphors. Behave properly. It's our moral behavior, it's our moral conduct that means everything to God. This is the hour to live righteously. This is the hour right before Christ comes to put on Christ and be totally immersed in his word. Be totally immersed in life transforming character. That's what Christ is calling us to. That's what Paul is talking about behaving properly in this hour. We should be people who are consumed because we live in this hour and we know the time. But how do How does our life characterize and exemplify the Lord Jesus Christ? How is our moral behavior? It means everything to God. It means honorable, modesty, respectable, noble. It means shameless in God's eyes. 
Nothing is concealed. You know, we got so much brouhaha going on around about people, you know, the government and everybody having access to emails and texts. And it's kind of unnerving, isn't it? It really is. That the government has access to everything. That anybody would have access to everything. But as Christians, you know, we'd be like, all right, I don't like it in a political sense of the way. But the truth of the matter is, I've got nothing to be ashamed of. Go for it. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like it. Like I said, in a political way, it's kind of unnerving, uncomfortable. But in a spiritual sense of the way, it makes no difference. We've got nothing to conceal. That's what Paul is saying here. Live in such a way that what people are whispering in the back rooms and what Jesus says, they can shout it from the rooftops. Because you have nothing to be ashamed of. And when they say, but we know what you used to do, and then you can say, let me tell you what Christ has done. Let me remind you what Christ has done. Yes, let me tell you some other stuff you don't even know that Christ has forgiven me. While we're at it, pull up a chair. Let me tell you about the first 30 years of my life. Let me tell you what Christ has forgiven me. We live in a culture that has no shame. No shame at all. There was a time when things, people did things or they did it in the darkness. They did it on certain streets and certain geographical locations. But now it's everywhere. It's open season. It's wholesale. Anything goes on television anywhere. We live in an amoral society wants nothing to do with absolute truth and absolute morality. Nothing at all. Behave properly as in the daytime. Conduct reveals character. Conduct reveals character. And what a person truly values in their life. Conduct says so much. It also says how people really do spiritually interpret the times. You can see how someone lives. And you can see, are they following the spirit of Christ? Or are they following following the spirit of the age. Anything goes. This progressive thought that's the blind leading the blind and they're both falling into the pit. Character, conduct reveals character and what a person values. This is a vice list. Uh, This vice list is not the only one Paul uses. Paul uses other vice lists already mentioned in chapter 1 and chapter 3. Uh, this is sort of a condensed version, these six verbs here, these six vices that Paul talks about. He speaks about many more in chapter 1 and chapter 3. But if we were to try to find some kind of logic in these, just these six that he picks out, it probably is this. The first four represent the worst that the culture around them. It's the worst, the the first four represent the worst of the culture around them. And the last two being jealousy and quarreling, that represents the worst Christians can do to each other. A house divided what? Cannot stand. Paul often talks about Christians uh, 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 to pursue the the bond of peace, uh, uh, in, in, in the spirit of unity, how 
Christians need to be careful how we conduct and how we conduct our feelings towards one another. This is, this is high in this hour. This is the hour. Remember, know the time. Christ is about to come any moment. Grace sufficient to be saved and grace sufficient to be changed is readily available to you as children of light. This is the season of the time of the gospel. There's been no season like it. There will never ever be another season like it again. Put off the works of darkness. If you're still living in sin and you're not saved, put off the work of darkness and put on the armor of light. If you're a Christian, take it off and keep it off. Follow Christ. Put on Christ. Stop the quarreling. Stop being decisive. Stop being jealous of one another. Do you not know this is the last hour and God's coming back for a people who are united. Now you know why I said we all got to put off our slumbering. Because we can slumber in one thing or another. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul sums up here from a theatrical metaphor of actually changing one's costume between acts. He borrows this from uh, the Greek theatrical world. And as a play was going on and someone would change real quick in between scenes, that's what Paul is basically saying. He's saying, change. Change quickly, because the hour is almost here. You have no time. This is the time. This is the opportunity. You've left the one act of darkness, and now you're in the other act of the light. Change. Put on Christ. You're on a different stage now. You're in a different play now. This is real life now. Put on Christ. And this has two applications and goes back to verse 11 where it says, To awaken from your slumber, and that's salvation for some, and sanctification for others. For some Christians, they're still sleeping and still slumbering and they're still slow and their heart is slow to learn. And Paul is saying, the grace is here. This is the hour. Put on Christ. Put him on quickly. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't gratify his desires. Put on Christ now. He'll forget about everything. Don't let him find you undressed. Don't let him find you undressed. This is the hour. Do you ever think about Anybody get bored with life? Where'd that come from? I know what you're asking. But if you were to think that every day and every waking moment is to put on Christ, you would not be bored. When you realize that every day, every moment is the hour to draw closer to Christ, it's the hour to contemplate, to know the time, to make an assessment. I'm Brian Martin. By providence, I was born in the 20th century. By providence, I was born in America. By providence, my mother was Gertrude and my father was Vincent. By providence, I'm a Martin. By providence, I was saved under grace and not under the law. By providence, I hear the gospel. By providence, I have 15 different Bibles. By providence, I have an iPad. By providence, I have an iPod. By providence, I can listen to sermons. By providence, I can read. By providence, I can pray. By providence, I have freedom to worship God at this hour. You're not bored. You have no reason to be bored. Putting on Christ is a full-time 
duty and job. Faith that saves is faith that sanctifies. Let's close with these remarks. The person of faith knows the moral, spiritual times we live in. Like I said, you know the times. He didn't say, I hope you know the time, or uh, I've left you enough time to figure it out on your own. You know the time because the time and an assessment of the time always comes with the proclamation of the gospel. If you're saved under a good gospel ministry, you will know the time. It's preached every Sunday. And just as a worldly person knows their special times and circumstances, it could be a wedding, a party, it could be a formal party, a casual party, be going to work. They know the time, they know the hour, they know how to dress. They know what's appropriate. And they know what's not appropriate. So as Christians. Make no provision. I love that. Make no provision. This is what he's saying. Don't be in or create any environment where sin is easily accessible. Our friends upstairs, our friends in AA would say people... It's a good saying. It really is. Anybody who grew up and got sober in AA knows that people in places and things. If you wanted to get sober and stay sober, you live by that rule. Paul's saying the same thing. Paul said it first. Yeah. <laughs> Not Bill Wilson. But that was borrowed for them, all right? But make no provision for the flesh. Make sure as Christians don't create or hang out in an environment where sin is easy accessible. Be careful. And we get a picture of the sinful flesh that's personified here as something or someone or some entity that needs to be continually satisfied and stimulated. That's the flesh in us. Do you know how to crucify the flesh? With its passions and desires. Don't water it. Starve it to death. Don't be in people, places, and things. Don't make provision for the flesh. That speaks to all of us in a specific way. I don't, I don't know your areas. I know my areas that I have to be careful at all times. Make no provision for the flesh. If I'm in the gym and I'm doing 1,500 this and that every day for four hours a day, I'm providing for the flesh. I'm living in a worldly attitude. I've got to be careful of that. we all got to be careful of making provision for the flesh. I give you homework. Make a list of two or three or half dozen things that chances are you could be providing for the flesh and not even realize it. <laughs> I'll have Pastor John read it all next week. <laughs> Alright? But this is the one thing that's about it. There's only one antidote put on Christ. That's it. When it comes to the flesh, you better be on with Christ. You want to stop drinking? There's other places you can go to. You want to stop the flesh? Only Christ will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that there's an antidote for the monster called the flesh. And it's your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, Father. And we thank you, God, as easily as we put him on by faith and salvation, God. We too now can put him on in our sanctification, Lord. 
We thank you, O God, that we know the time. We're not learning it. We know it, Father God. And the time we live in, Father God, is a severe darkness. And this is the hour of the light of the gospel. And we are children of light. We're not in the darkness anymore. We're not in ignorance anymore, Father God. Help your children to know that this is the time, this is the hour of to be vigil, Father God, and watching the flesh, making no provision for it, Father God, to consistently and constantly put on Christ in our prayer life, in our study life, in our witnessing, in our love walk, in our being uh, conscientious citizens of the state, Father God. And uh, we can put on Christ, Father God, when we come and we worship together as a community and depend and lean on one another, our gifts and talents, Father God. And we show our care and concern for each other, Father God. Let us put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh according to its monstrous desires and passions, Father God. We thank you for Christ in Jesus' name. Amen.